Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Acts and the works of Jesus through His church and in His kingdom. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Vanessa and me in conversation today are Nan Boudreaux and Emily Aceves. Welcome, ladies. Thanks. Hello. Nan, tell us just a little bit about how you and Emily know each other. Well, I feel like I've known Emily for a long time because she is the niece of one of my closest friends, Susan Jeffcoat. So I knew who Emily was when she would uh, sing at church when she was a single, and then later when she got married. Emily, you were not here at First Pressure whole growing up years, right? You came later? That's right. I, I visited some throughout um, dating Jonathan, who's now my husband, but didn't join and come consistently till after we were married. It's fun to have that connection through a good friend like yes, that. Yes, it is. Nan, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, and then you're going to answer our first things first question for today, which is, what is the first thing you remember planting, or the first time you remember planting something in the ground and watching it grow? Well, um, like Amber said, my name is Nan Boudreau, and I've been married to my college sweetheart for almost 45 years, and his name is Gary. I have two adult children, three if you count my daughter in love, and one granddaughter who's three years old. Daughter in love. I love that so much. Very much so. So what was the first time you remember planning something? I must have been in elementary school, but growing up in southwest Georgia, we ate a lot of watermelon. So I decided that I was going to grow my own watermelon. So I went out in the backyard, dug up a little patch of grass and planted the watermelons. And believe it or not, they started coming up. But I did not get to um, enjoy the fruits of my labor because the man who cut our grass accidentally mowed over the vines before they could produce fruit. So I was a little disappointed, but it did not stop me from eating watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) You never, did you ever try again? No, I didn't. So you got the vine, but not the fruit. Right. I cried. I remember crying and tattling on him to my, to my daddy. Well, good for you. (laughs) Bad lawn care man. He should know to look out for watermelon vines. That is obvious, right? (laughs) Emily, what about you? So I'm married to Jonathan, and we have five kids. Um, Libby is nine, Manny is seven, Daniel is four, and we have twin boys, Matthew and Whit, who are two and a half. I'm currently a stay-at-home mom. I did study social work in college and had a little stint of being a real estate agent, but now I stay home with my kids full-time. And hobbies... It's hard to have hobbies these days, but (laughs) I do really enjoy cooking and baking, especially. And my kids enjoy when I bake. So that's fun to do and fun to do with them. What's your favorite thing to bake? Hmm. Breads, but like banana bread, Mm -hmm. easy, quick things. Probably in this season, I need things to be done quickly. Mm -hmm. If I leave them for too long, somebody gets their hands in them. Oh, yeah. Uh uh (laughs) It doesn't last. What's the first thing you remember, Emily, planting, watching grow? I don't remember planting many things personally. I'm kind of known for having a gray thumb in my family (laughs) instead of a green thumb. Um, But I remember when I was really young, probably about six or seven, my dad had a garden in the back corner of the yard in the house where we lived. And 
he would grow rows of squash and tomatoes and okra. And I remember being a little girl and running down to the back corner of the yard when I was homeschooled in like the first grade every day, going to see what cherry tomatoes were ripe that day so I could pick them mm-hmm. before it was too late. So that's kind of the earliest memory, which I haven't thought of in so many years. This are fun questions to make us think. You know, Emily, a lot like you, I think I remember more harvesting than planting because, you know, my dad grew everything that we ate just about. I mean, as far as produce went and then my grandmother's yard butted up against ours. And I remember picking okra and and stuff like that with her. So my first memories of growing something was really with my kids or attempting to grow something, I should say. (laughs) You have a great thumb, too. (laughs) Um, My husband says that I don't that plants don't necessarily um, die that I take care of. They just don't flourish. (laughs) (laughs) He said they live a compromised life (laughs) is how my husband describes that. That's funny. Yes. Compromised life. Compromised. I my parents grew a lot of produce as well and my mom loved flowers and so I don't remember the first thing I helped to plant but I do remember that sense of anticipation of putting it in the ground mm-hmm. and naively as a child thinking like the next day I would go out and there would be something there mm-hmm. and of course you have to wait and then there's sun, it, that, that little seed needs sunny days it needs rainy days it needs some cold days warm days it needs a whole mixture of things before it begins to sprout and then I remember being amazed that something actually did come out of the ground and it was alive. You know, you plant that little dead looking mm-hmm, seed and you mm-hmm. put it in there and then this tender green shoot comes out. And I thought that that was pretty fascinating. And then I was pretty disappointed by the fact that, yes, my plant grew. Let's say maybe it was a squash plant. And I'm thinking, all right, good. We're going to have squash. Now, I'm sure I wasn't thinking that as a child because I don't really like squash, but I wanted to see that thing come on. And it seemed to start so well, but then the weeds come in and the pests that particularly tend to like squash or whatever. It's so mm-hmm. disappointing that now I have to take care of this thing. Like, and it requires work and it's, it's not quite as easy as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Made me think that several times in his parables, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven like a seed. Mm-hmm. In one particular parable, he describes it as a mustard seed, saying that even though it's the smallest of seeds, when it has grown larger, It grows larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And we've seen that parable or what Jesus is describing in that parable come to life in the book of Acts because springing from the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is his kingdom. It's growing, it's spreading, and it's becoming home to many. Last week, we talked with Kay and Tori from Acts chapters 10 and 11 about the priority Jesus places on his kingdom, being one in which all cultures live and worship together in unity. And at this point in the book of Acts, the good news of Jesus' salvation for all people is being taken in particular to the Greeks in Antioch. Luke says near the end of chapter 11, that great numbers of people have believed and turned to the Lord. So as we've seen before in Acts, here at the beginning of chapter, at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, the kingdom is growing. And it's almost like a plant that seems to grow in front of your eyes. It's so fast you can hardly believe it. And yet, like we've also already seen in Acts, intermixed with this growth are the weeds and nasty pests of persecution It's like Mary Beth McGreevy says, by now we have become accustomed to the pattern in Acts. Trials follow blessings and blessings follow trials. Mm. 
So today we're talking from Acts chapter 12, where Luke moves from his account of the explosive growth of the kingdom into details concerning the trials and intense persecution facing the church. If you've not yet, listeners, read Acts 12, we encourage you to hit the pause button, read it for yourselves, come back and join us. You'll get much more out of our conversation if you do. Now, Vanessa, why don't you give just a brief description of what's going on in this passage? Yeah, as chapter 12 starts, we see King Herod laying violent hands on the church. Uh, Scripture describes it, killing James, the brother of John. And when Herod saw that killing James pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter and planned to do the same to him. And so he decides to wait to bring Peter to trial publicly after the Jewish celebration of Passover. And so verse nine emphasizes for us that when Herod was about to bring Peter out, and so you, you, you anticipate that, okay, Peter's about to be executed. Um, no doubt he was going to execute him. And then it says on that very night, the angel of the Lord rescued a sleeping Peter chained between two soldiers and with guards outside the prison an escape that is clearly impossible by human effort. Well, I, I like how Luke gives us details that he's, sleeping and he's chained to two people mm-hmm. beside him mm-hmm. and then there's sentries at the door as well mm-hmm. like Herod's taking no chances I'm sure right. he's heard about the time that Peter and John walked out right when the um, right. Pharisees had arrested right. him and put him in prison and thought they were going to do a lesson and then they go and they're like oh they disappeared right I'm sure Herod was thinking I'm not going to be made a fool that way so he does everything humanly possible to secure uh, his intentions to harm Peter and of course it looks very much like he is going to succeed so you'd have to think that the church is anticipating the same thing, that something terrible is going to happen to Peter because mm-hmm. it just happened to James. Right. You know, and, and they would have had to have felt powerless because he really was beyond their power right. to help. Right. But he obviously wasn't beyond God's power to help. I mean, when that angel comes to Peter, he breaks his chains and tells him to get up, put on his clothes, put on his cloak. Peter does all of that, but it's not until he walks out of the gate, he goes into this quiet, dark street and the angel of the Lord leaves. And he, it's like he comes to him since his senses. I think it mm-hmm. says he comes to himself and he realizes, oh, this is like a real deal. It's right. not just like it's not a vision. Yeah. Ghost of Christmas past. It's not, <laughs> it's not a vision. This is this is the real thing. And this impossible situation is met with powerful salvation. Mm -hmm. And the connector between those two things in this passage is prayer, right? uh, specifically earnest prayer. Mm -hmm. So Vanessa, tell us what you learned earnest prayer looks like in this passage. Yeah, I think that verse five is is such a pivotal verse because it says that, so Peter was kept in prison, but, and then it it causes us to anticipate that, that something's going to happen to counteract what's been said. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so there's, it's a powerful um, statement in light of Peter's imprisonment. The church is gathered at Mary, the mother of John's house, praying. And so earnest prayer aligned the saints of God with the purposes of God, which was for Peter to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and not for him to die at Herod's hands. And so the church prayed in earnest the will of God for Peter. And the Lord was pleased to answer them with supernatural power that would encourage and strengthen the church that was suffering great loss and violence, as you were just saying, they had just lost James. And so um, they were strengthened by um, this supernatural act. 
They had every reason to be discouraged with Peter being locked up and James, brother of John, just being killed. But instead of gathering to mourn, I I could imagine gathering to do lots of things other than gathering to pray. But they gathered to pray and not just gathered to pray. They gathered to pray earnestly. So I want to ask you, ladies, are you ever afraid or reluctant to pray earnestly? And how, how do these verses encourage you maybe to pray more earnestly? I did a lot of thinking about this in the past week, and I'm not. I'm not sure that I'm necessarily afraid or mindfully reluctant to pray earnestly as much as in this season of life that feels really chaotic. Sometimes I think I just get in the survival mode of doing the next thing and I'm, I'm distracted. And there are so many things fighting for my attention that when I'm striving in my own power, I have a hard time remembering that I have, I serve a God who wants to meet me in the chaos of the everyday in my life. I was encouraged in this verse how the only detail we're given about how the church prays is that it was earnestly. Yes. It doesn't tell us about these beautiful, flowery, spiritual words they used or their language. It doesn't tell us how long they prayed, just that they were sincere. It's earnestly means deep and sincere, with deep and sincere feeling and seriously. So in this season of life, I'd say my prayer life honestly has felt out of shape. <laughs> I think I believe the lie that um, my prayer isn't good enough or my heart isn't quiet enough. But truthfully, I can cry out to the Lord in the middle of twin tantrums and while kids need my attention or while we're trying to make it through homework, sincerely and wholeheartedly crying out to him is what he desires of me. Even if in that moment, I don't know what I'm expecting. I don't expect him to do anything, but it's where my heart goes when I'm stressed or under pressure. And right now, um, that's what he wants of me. And he hears that cry. Mm -hmm. Prayer in the little years definitely looks a lot different, doesn't it? Mm. I was always encouraged by the Isaiah 40 passage that says that uh, he gently leads those who have young. Mm -hmm. And I would read that and remember, wow, Lord, you have a tenderness for those with young and you know our struggle. Yeah, I, I get that. I fully feel that. I know certainly for myself, and if we're honest, for most of us, it's a battle and it's a spiritual battle. And because of the power and the gift of this that we probably don't have but a fraction of a grasp on the enemy knows that so there are a lot of external as well as internal uh, distractions right so a synonym for reluctant it might be indifferent or flippant Mm. and I think um, sometimes when I sit down to pray I might be a little um, indifferent and that would be having a lack of faith But also, I think uh, Ruth Barton described prayer and solitude as we sit down and we have a bunch of monkeys jumping around in trees in our head. Hmm. And so that is certainly part of the battle, too, that distraction. But in this particular verse, and both of y'all have already touched on this, this word earnestly is the key. And in the Greek, it means two words, outstretched. And that word, that Greek word, was the exact same word that described Jesus' prayer in the garden on the Mount of Olives when he said, Lord, take this cup from me, but it be your will, not mine. So in one hand, 
you know, I, I picture a word picture of having two hands outstretched, earnest, earnestly praying, God, here is my request, and I bring it to you as if my life depends on it. And then in this hand, but not my will, but your will. Mm. Because we know that God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want to. This group of young believers had prayed just as earnestly for James not to be killed. And we know that Jesus' earnest prayer was not answered, but God's will was. And I'm thankful for that because we wouldn't have salvation if his prayer had been answered. And then they earnestly prayed again, which I'm sure, like Vanessa said, they were very discouraged. Mm -hmm. But they still gathered together and being together, two or more, I think they gained strength to to pray for Peter. Mm -hmm. And God honored that. And that's why it's so important. Corporate prayer, we see the book of Acts is mentioned. Prayer is mentioned in some form at least 30 times in this book, more than any other of the gospel books, New Testament books. And every time it's mentioned, it precedes something powerful happening or something very important, whether they were selecting leaders, um, healing, um, the word being spoken. But that is this thing about prayer. I've I've only touched the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. and I really believe that um, that God desires for us to, to really enter into what it means to pray in an earnest way and believe God and bring to Him our request as if our life depends on it, but then also wanting His will and realizing that, you know, many times— I want to tell God how to answer my prayers. Or I want to tell him how he should do it, even. Mm-hmm. I want to micromanage his, his, my request. Mm-hmm. They always have conditions many times tacked onto him. And God is showing me more and more how circumstances are used to make me more and more dependent on him and to go to him mm-hmm. in prayer. Oh, man, that is, that is so good. Your picture of... Uh, outstretched hands it it takes me back to my grandfather's prayer hymn from when I was a kid Uh, he would pray a hymn father I stretch my hand to thee no other help I know Mm. if thou withdraw thyself from me whether shall I go and there was a dependence that he exhibited in that because those were his words that he would say when he opened his eyes in the Mm. morning so there was an earnestness there was an outstretched hand and there was a, a dependence on the Lord I love I love that, Nan. Thank you. I, I liked uh, how you took what she was saying, and, and those words came to your mind mm-hmm. um, from your grandfather's hymn. And I think what a beautiful and inspiring thing it is, and yet sometimes how reluctant I am mm-hmm. and incapable, probably, really, I am to pray that way. You know, if you think you're praying with two hands, and one says, my life depends on it, and the other one says, not my will but yours, that's tough because yes. you are in a very desperate place if your life depends on it which we don't often realize but we always are and not my will but yours be done is 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 frightening at times especially if you don't know very well the one that you're praying to and as I think about prayer in my life I think sometimes I stumble on 
sometimes why do I have to be in this situation? Like yeah. where my life depends on it. You, those believers could be like, why, Lord? Why is Peter, why does Herod seem to have the upper hand? Why did you let James die? Why all of this hardship? Why all this persecution? That question comes to my mind. And then the one about like, what am I supposed to pray here? Like, it, what's the right thing to pray? Mm-hmm. When my youngest was in the hospital a couple of years ago with a sickness, we didn't know what was going on. It was really a scary situation. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I'm supposed to pray. Mm-hmm. And it seems so obvious just to pray for the Lord to heal him. But in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm supposed to pray for your will. I don't know if you're will. Like, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't know if I should ask for that, if I shouldn't ask for that. Like, right. who am I coming to? What am I asking for? How am I doing all of these things? And so I just, I've been encouraged as I'm, as I'm thinking along to think, you know, the Lord allows us to see that our life depends on him because he wants us to know who it is that we depend on and his goodness mm-hmm. in that. And and even in the face of our trials that he provides us that goodness and he doesn't, you don't have to ask just the right thing. That's what I loved Emily. Yes. You mentioned earlier, yes. he didn't say what they were praying for. He just said that they were praying earnestly. And I think, Lord, you tell us that at times we don't even know what to pray. Yeah. And you intercede for us. We don't have to get that right. Yeah, And we can trust you with the disappointment of it being a different answer, because although it may be a different answer, we're not going to be disappointed in who God proves himself to be. Right. And I think that is always proven true, even in times when he answers differently than what I would, what I would hope. You know, we want to learn to pray earnestly. And we also want the other thing we see in this chapter is we want to learn to pray expectant. Mm-hmm. because it's possible to do one without the other, mm-hmm. which I really think is what we see here. The church is praying earnestly, but I don't think that they were expecting uh, what they got. How is it y'all do? You know, sometimes we struggle to be earnest. Other times I think we can be earnest, but we might not be very expectant. How do y'all feel about that in your own prayer lives? Do you pray expectantly? And if, if not, why is that difficult for you? I think the reason I struggle with um, expecting God to answer my prayers. It's just a lack of faith. Sometimes when you pray for someone suffering or, or someone to be saved for a long time, you get discouraged. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard to, to just hold on to that excitement that God is going to answer that prayer in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to persevere. Um, it's a struggle. It's part of that battle. Um, but many times, and this was going on especially when I had teenagers at home, my prayers would be anxious. Mm-hmm. And I was reading uh, George Mueller um, during that time, and um, I I ran across something he said, and God just kind of opened my eyes that that anxiety in my prayer was a lack of faith. Because Mueller says the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith, faith-filled prayer, is the end of anxiety. So I ran across the little books um how to pray for your adult children, how to pray for your teenagers. Um, I just blanked on the author. Stormy O'Martin. Storm, yes, mm-hmm. Stormy O'Martin. And uh, those are written prayers that are all based on Scripture. And I thought, okay, I'll just start praying these because 
I know that Scripture is the will of God. I don't have to question about whether I'm praying the will of God for my children. So that just relieved a lot of the anxiety. And I wasn't just struggling through my prayers. I would just pray these written scriptures that are in her books. Mm -hmm. And there was so much freedom. And then, um, you know, a short few years later, I saw many, many prayers answered. So that was a relief. But um, this verse is also encouragement to me because I see that God um, can work even though, even when my prayers like theirs are imperfect, they fall short in form or either in faith, just like this group of believers that were praying at John's house for Peter. Um, God still answered. He still, we do not have to be perfect. Christians are perfect prayers. And many times the Holy Spirit prays in our groans and our cries. And um, we don't even have the words. I think often I approach prayer more as a way of lining my, aligning my heart to his purposes or um, accepting and embracing a certain trial or something we're encountering that's difficult. And I can become passive in prayer. And I think it goes by many names. You know, it can look really spiritual. I'm living with an eternal perspective or I'm resting in the sovereignty of God. I'm accepting his divine plan or whatever <laughs> it may bring. But truly, I am like Peter asleep in, in that prison cell. I think I get too comfortable there. And in studying this passage, it really just hit me how this cheapens this priceless gift I've been given of this relationship I have to the one who intercedes on my behalf. And there is great power in prayer. Mm -hmm. There's great power in this gift that I'm not fully recognizing or utilizing and not just to change my heart, but my circumstances. Mm -hmm. And deep down, I think this must be a lack of belief or as Nan talked about a lack of faith that, that I believe he will or is able it really fortified this passage really fortified my belief that oh, God is able and he will do these things that we ask of him. And you're so right. It's so easy to become passive in prayer, especially prayers that we have memorized. You know, we can just kind of say them rotely and not really feel the full impact of who we're talking to or what we're asking. Um, there's a, a, a quote, I think it's D.L. Moody who says that prayer is the tender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. And it's like, do I really think about prayer that way? Sometimes when, I, when I've lost perspective, I'm not thinking about the fact that this really is an omnipotent, all-powerful God. And he has invited me into this space to, um, to allow me to participate in accomplishing his will and his earth. Um, and he does that through prayer. And he invites me into that. And I don't think, I know that. I don't always think about prayer that way when I become passive or when I'm just saying it rotely or when I have, you know, lost perspective of who he is and, and the privilege he has given me and in inviting me into that space. Mm -hmm. But praying those expectant prayers, it gives us the opportunity to see prayer answered in specific ways. And it's, it's a, a unique faith builder. And so Peter exhorting James to tell others about how the Lord has brought him out. We see that in verse 17, Peter tells him to go tell the other brothers uh, of what the Lord has done after he told him um, about how he had gotten out of prison. And so he was encouraging James and others to rehearse the mighty acts of God. And that's a great way to regain perspective. So how has God answered one of your earnest 
or even maybe your half-hearted prayers recently? So recently we had a family member who was sick and hospitalized um, with a rare um, viral infection. And it seemed like after a couple weeks of him being unresponsive and being on a ventilator, he wasn't going to make it. And we prayed for him daily as a family, but as weeks turned into months um, at dinner, we would pray. It would truly, it would be our four-year-old who would remember when we would forget. And he mm. would say, don't forget, I'm, I'm going to say a prayer. And he would just pray, dear Lord, heal, heal, please heal Robert's body. Mm. And it would be his um, prayers that would help us remember to pray fervently. Um, and you know, what God did is Robert came home last week after over four months in the hospital, praying for him together fervently as a family and seeing God answer this prayer has been a really sweet thing for our family, for our children to witness firsthand God at work when they prayed for this specifically. And it's encouraged me to pray earnestly out loud with them so they can recount and testify his power and how he hears us when we pray. That was really neat how precious yeah and, you know it's often children that do remind us because they don't get as discouraged as we do often right that's just amazing well a small army of family and friends and loved ones prayed with earnest with outstretched hearts for tracy valerio she was a precious sister in the lord servant of the lord several things happened during the last few months when um, many of us were visiting her and praying for and praying over her. Definitely many answers were answered beyond what we imagined would be answered. And all of our hearts obviously were drawn nearer to him uh, by meeting her needs. The two, three, two or three main prayers God laid on my heart for Tracy uh, during the last months of her life was that um, healing, of course, and that uh, she would not experience pain, but most of all, toward the very end, that she would feel God's presence in a really powerful way. And God answered yes to all those things. It was not easy to see some of the way we wanted him to answer the prayers, not go the way we wanted them. But um, God just, he doesn't love us less when he allows tragedy into our lives. And it's these helpless situations that just push us to depend on him more and more. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when we're in um, suffering situations and when we see loved ones suffering that God and we depend on him then God is most glorified and God was certainly glorified in her life in her last days here on earth with her family it was just an honor it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to go through but it was an honor and a privilege to walk through the valley, the shadow of death, with someone that you care about. Mm -hmm. And God was glorified in her life and in her death. That's precious, Nan. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's still real tender. Thank you so much. Both of y'all are, are sharing a, a situation in which you prayed for someone that you loved who was sick. 
and you saw the Lord answer in two totally different ways. Mm-hmm. And yet he gets the glory for both. And to see the combination is sweet. You know, when we think about praying earnestly or we think about praying expectantly, sometimes I wonder, how can I pray this way? What gives me the right to pray this way? How can I trust that I'll be heard? How can I trust the one I'm praying to? How can someone like me be comfortable freely receiving God's abundant provisions? There's a lot of questions, I think, that come to our minds when we think about prayer. And I just to end, I just want y'all to, listeners, listen to this passage in Romans 8. It's in the message translation, and it answers some of those questions and more. It says, Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. And that, my friends, is why we can pray earnestly and expectantly. Amen. Man, what good news that is. Nan and Emily, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Listeners, if you want to see the pretty faces of our guests, check out our Women's Bible Study Facebook page at Women's Bible Study FPCA or find us on Instagram, First Press Augusta Women. We'd love for you to join us next week. Take us with you while you go on a field trip to the farmer's market. Pick up some fresh produce. Next week, Sarah Loki and Margie Batts will be joining us as we discuss the surprising central message of the gospel. Hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings when comforts are declining he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain